Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own, my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe." You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive." 
How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. Thank you, Chuck, for reading. Um, as I get started here, I'd like to just first pause and pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord God, I thank you today for giving us your word and giving us your spirit to help us understand it. This passage that Chuck read is full of things about belief. Help us to hear and believe. Open our minds to understand and help us to walk by faith where we stand upon your truth. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to start out with... Bob calls this his splash screen, the overall theme for the book of John. We started into the book of John uh, the first weekend in March. Chuck taught the overview, and then Bob's been teaching chapter by chapter since then. So I overheard someone, I'm not going to say who it was, but I overheard someone whispering one Sunday morning, does Bob know the words are overlapping? And I want to tell you, because some of you, not everybody's been here since when Bob first preached on this, that's on purpose. The lamb is overlapping with the picture of Christ on the cross. The lamb being the lamb that was, was uh, slain with the blood put over the doorposts so that God would pass over the Israelite homes on the night when the 10th plague happened to the Egyptians and led to Pharaoh finally letting the Israelites go. And for over a thousand years, the Israelites have celebrated slash remembered that sacrifice by offering lambs at Passover, and Jesus is our Passover lamb. So the words are overlapping on purpose. The lamb of God is the son of God. The son of God is the lamb of God. All right. What to do? There we go. Okay. So this is a slide that Bob's been using every week, and I just wanted to put up here, uh, in case anybody on, on Zoom or here in the building is, is here for the first time as we've been going through the book of John, um, there's a twofold pur- purpose of the gospel. John is driving home the deity of Christ, but then that leads to major teaching on the unity of, of the church because it's in the unity of the church that people believe our message so that they may, may know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come for them. So, little bit of background. Last week, Bob talked on, taught on two healings, uh, the end of chapter 4 and then the beginning of chapter 5. The second healing, which was the third of the signs that John's been listing as he goes through the book, um, is this man who had been sick for 38 years. He's at the pool in Bethesda, and Jesus seeks him out and comes to heal him. 
And the man is in a hopeless situation. I thought Bob did a really good job driving that home last week, how hopeless this man's situation is. He is so hopeless that when Jesus asked him, do you wish to get well, back in verse 6, he doesn't even answer the question. He starts talking about the logistics being so impossible. He's hopeless. Well, Jesus heals him, and... um, and I have up here the authority of Jesus over sickness. As, as I'm teaching, i got this little square here that's got the authority, various things. If you're using the, the note sheet, I left one off. So you'll have to pay attention to see if you can figure out which one is missing in the notes. But anyway, so Jesus heals him, but there, there's an issue, a big issue. Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And for the Jews, that becomes a, becomes a major big deal. And, and, and Chuck started teaching at that point. That in the text, the Jews don't even talk about the miracle. They don't talk about this man being made well. They're focused on how can this man be from God if he's breaking the Sabbath. Now, he's not actually breaking the Sabbath law given to Moses. What he's breaking is one of many rabbinical laws that have been derived since then on what constitutes work. But they're focused on that. Um, And so that sets this up with Jesus' equality with God. I, I have a theme that you'll see when we get past the background of the unity of the Father and the Son. It's a major part of the, of the teaching in this passage we're going to cover this morning. But before I jump to that, I want to talk about this term Jews. Uh, John uses this term throughout, throughout his book. And um, there are a couple of transla- translations that translate that as Jewish leaders. And I just want to point out, I don't think that's accurate. Uh, the term you, you see there on the screen means Jewish, belonging to the Jewish nation, Judean. It is a larger group than just the Jewish leaders, than just the religious leaders. In fact, John starts using this term in John 1. And as we go through these, the, these next uh, couple of months and cover through to about chapter 10 or 11, this term is in chapter 5, it's in chapter 6, it's in chapter 7, it's in 8. It's interesting, in 8, it's not that John doesn't know how to use other terms. In 8, there's a big chunk where it starts with the Pharisees saying something to Jesus. And it's clear that that's a discussion between the Pharisees and Christ. But then he switches back to the Jews. It's in chapter 10, 9 gets skipped. uh, And I think it's in a couple a little bit later. It's more than just the religious leaders. It's Jewish people. Now, in general, I think it does probably mean Jews who know the Old Testament. The average Jewish boy would have gone to Torah school. He would have memorized chunks of the Old Testament, even if he wasn't a religious leader. That doesn't mean there weren't some secular Jews. There, there obviously were some who were not living a Jewish life. But this term covers lots of people. Some of Jesus' disciples are concluded in this term. So many of you know John eight thirty one and 32. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. So those of you that memorized it, do you remember how that 31 starts? It's, he said to the Jews who believed him. And then it, it becomes this 
conversation where a bunch of them get really angry with him and turn away. So this term, as you're reading through, through John, as we're teaching through it, it's not just the Jewish leaders. It does include them, but it includes a broader swath of people. And in both John 6 and in John 8, you're going to have people in this term who walk away from Christ, who had been following him. Okay, so, um, so Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. They take issue with that. And his response in verse 17 is, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. And so he's expressing authority over the Sabbath. We're not going to go look at the passage, but in Mark 2, which I believe has already happened before we get to this point in John 5, he has had the, 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 the thing has happened where the disciples are picking the grains of wheat as they walk through a field. And, and some of the religious leaders challenge him about that. Why do, you, why, do you, why do your disciples do that? And that's the passage that ends with Jesus saying that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he has authority over the Sabbath. Now, before I go f- forward out of this background, the one other thing that I want to say, when we're in verse 17, he has used a term, my father. There's three terms Jesus regularly uses, and all three of them happen in this chapter 5, that light up the Jews. One is my father. Now, for us today, we are used to Jesus teaching even in the model prayer, that we should pray to our Father who is in heaven. We understand that we are adopted in Christ as sons and daughters of God, so he's our Father. But to them, that was not a concept that was part of normal life for the Jews. When he says, my Father, he is violating a lot of stuff that they are holding sacred and it is, to them, it means he's claiming equality with God. And you see that in verse 18, where John says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, as if that wasn't enough, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They get it. When he says, my father, he's claiming Godship. He's God. Now, the second son, the second son, the second term is son of God. He uses that a lot through the book of John, son of God. If I, apart from this message, had asked you, where in the Bible do we find the virgin birth? The first thing, the normal thing that we say is in Matthew and Luke, because that's where it talks about Mary being a virgin. But this term where he calls himself the son of God, this has the virgin birth built in it all the way through the book of John over and over again, starts in in chapter 1. And when he says son of, that he's the son of God. They get it. He means God is his father. There's no doubt about that. To us. That if we said that in our community or neighborhood. People don't necessarily connect that as well. But for them they got it. And it was infuriating to them in general. And then the third term that he uses is son of man. And that one comes from Daniel chapter 7. We might read that a little bit later in the message. But in, that's where Daniel, in a vision, he sees the Ancient of Days sitting on a, thone, on a throne. And one like a son of man comes to him. And the Ancient of Days gives him a kingdom that is going to conquer all the earth, all the nations, and rule forever. And so they equated that with the Messiah to come. They're looking for a military Messiah. And with it being God. The Son of Man coming to rule. So those are three terms that really uh, light them up. And, and they don't have quite that effect on us as we read. 
But I want you to understand that because that's the effect on the audience. So that's, that's what has just happened as we start into verse 19. So there's a principle here in verse 19 and 20. Jesus says, uh, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So on the surface, there's sort of a natural illustration here for us of a son, a boy, who wants to copy his dad. But it's much deeper and richer than that because this is Yahweh the Father who has sent Yahweh the Son. And Yahweh the Son is doing what he sees Yahweh the Father do. It's a much deeper thing. Um, But the Son does what the Father does. Well, by extension, the Son also says what the Father says. In John 8, a few pages over, Jesus says, I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. John 8, 28. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. This pops up throughout the book of John. These are not an exhaustive list of similar verses. Where Jesus is saying he does what he's seen the Father do, he says what he's seen the Father say. Another way that this comes out is Jesus talking about having come from above. I've come from above, and I tell you things. That was in John 3 with Nicodemus. And it's the same kind of concept. Uh, in John eight forty two, he says, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. I haven't come of myself. Some, um, the part where it says, but he sent me, some, some versions put in there the word initiative. I didn't come on my own initiative. It wasn't Yahweh the Son's, Jesus's, idea, I'm going to go to earth. Not a unilateral idea, anyway. Yahweh the Father has sent Yahweh the Son. And I'm throwing in Yahweh here because it helps me understand this a whole lot better, if you get that. Um, so... We see here the authority of Jesus from the Father because the Father is the one who, to use another word, is commissioning him. He's sending him as God's representative on earth to these people created in the image of God. He's going to come in flesh as they are in flesh. Uh, so, So the Father gives his authority to the Son. So Jesus then, as we go into into 21, so I... I want to give you a little overview of where I'm headed here. I'm, teach, I'm mainly teaching on 18 through 30 this morning. And 31, the stuff about the five witnesses, we're going to get to that. That might be pretty quick. That might be fodder for care group next Sunday night. We're going to have a normal care group uh, on the fourth Sunday. Um, but as I look at 19 through 30... There's kind of a pivot point, a fulcrum verse, which is verse 24. 24 comes, leaps out at me, comes out as the key verse for me. Now, you can do your own outline. You might have a different verse. But when I look at this, 24 is a fulcrum verse, a key verse. And the arguments Jesus is making on one side of that verse then get also reinforced or made on the other side of the verse. So, for instance, with 19 and 20 where he says, I can do nothing of myself. I only do what the Father does. If you look at verse 30, the end of the section, 
He says, I can do nothing, and my version says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I don't seek my own will. So it's the same kind of concept. I'm not doing anything that I haven't seen the Father do. We've seen that on both ends of the passage. So I'm focused on teaching verse by verse to verse 24. And as we do that, we're going to hit some of the verses on the other side. Okay? So on, uh, after having said this, the son does what the father does. The son says what the father says. Jesus is now going to give two examples. The first one he gives is resurrection. Verse 21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. I, I could have called this authority of Jesus over life, authority of Jesus to give life, authority of Jesus over resurrection. Resurrection has been given by the father to the Son. We see this on the other side of verse 24. With, uh, we actually see it in 24 when he mentions eternal life. But we see it on the other side when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. So Jesus has been given resurrection. The power to raise the dead, to give life, has been given to him by the Father. All right, uh, I got a verse there, John 6, 40. Let's look at that real quick. In John 6, 40, Jesus says... So as we go through, starting really here with chapter 5, I, I, I don't know about you, but if you've read John very often... From like John, except for John 9, which is mostly narrative, John 5 through 10 is a stretch where there is a little bit of narrative and lots of what sounds like arguing. It's contentious. Somebody is taking, usually the Jews is the most often phrase, are taking issue with something Jesus has done or said. And Jesus then talks for a while about it and then they latch on to something else and he talks some more about it and 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 so when you read this again i don't know about you it's sometimes it has come across to me as as lots of talking lots of talking lots of talking and there will be boom there'll be an amazing verse that pops up in the middle of it. then lots of talking lots of talking and it can be hard to kind of follow it so I'm trying to break this down so that at least this passage, you see how it concisely makes sense, both in what Jesus is presenting about himself, but also to this audience. So he's giving two examples. What the son, the son does what the father does. The son says what the father says. First example is resurrection. And in John 6, verse 40, in another one of these back and forth with the Jews, he says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So you see that again there. The will of the Father is not that the Father is going to raise them up. He's passing it to the Son. All right. The second one that he gives is judgment. Verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone. Did you know that before he got to this verse? Now, I know you've read this before, but pretend you had never read this before. Isn't God the Father the judge? That's what we tend to think. 
but he's delegating. Not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. On the other side of verse 24, we see this uh, in 27. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. There's that third phrase, son of man. Um, In verse 29, those who did the good, well, 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. This has been given to the Son to carry forth, to accomplish, to do this. Now, I think, by the way, on 29, where he talks about the resurrection of life, the resurrection of judgment, that's one resurrection where the dead come to life. And there's a judgment happening there. One meaning of judgment is to render a ruling. So there's a rendering being made there. Righteous evil. And the result is life. Or, yeah, condemnation. Um, But it's a one resurrection that's happening there. And I think that judgment that's happening corresponds to both the Matthew 25 sheep and goats passage and to the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. Now, that's somewhat controversial. I'm, at this point in my life, I think they're the same judgment. But there are a lot of people that think the Matthew 25 one is a different judgment from the great white throne judgment, so I'm just, I'm just letting you know that. I think they're the same. That could be a care group discussion, too. Um, but in, in Matthew 25, if we go there real quick, this interesting thing I want to point out about judgment. So in, in John 5, Jesus has just said, uh, I, um, All who are in the tomb, tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In Matthew 25, it's about judgment. The word resurrection doesn't actually appear. Starting in verse 31, I'm in Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. Now, who is sitting on the throne? The Son of Man, yeah. So this is Jesus sitting on the throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's judging, rendering a judgment. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say, and I'm going to stop at that point, who's the king? Jesus. So we're seeing in Matthew 25 a much expanded version of what late, and by the way, that's in the last week before the crucifixion, late in Jesus' ministry, we're seeing an expanded version of what he's teaching early in his ministry over here in John 5, that judgment has been given to him. Now, I do want to point out something here from what he says in Matthew 25. He says he's, he's using a farming analogy. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, so the king is going to separate the righteous from the wicked. So, I see Karina, I don't see Curtis I don't know what all of you do, but I think Curtis is probably the closest among us to an agrarian way of life, I think. And I wish he was here, because I was going to ask him, 
Curtis, do you have trouble distinguishing sheep from goats? Now, I'm not a farmer, but I go to petting zoos, and I can tell a sheep from a goat. You know, and so when you think of judge, when we think of judges here on earth and making a judgment, you need wisdom. You know, Solomon had wisdom from God to make hard decisions. You need to gather facts, have witnesses, testimony, and figure it out. Okay, this happens. Uh, Hunter could testify in court, traffic violations, stuff like that happens on a smaller scale, maybe, but that's happening. But Jesus says. The judgment at the end is not like that for the judge. It's like the farmer. So I picture a farmer. He's got his sheep and goats. Come, You're a sheep to the right. Not, you're a goat to the left. Sheep, goat, sheep, goat. That's what it's going to be like for Jesus in judgment. Not a hard thing. Okay, I'm back in John 5. All right, I got some good verses here. Because Peter and Paul give witness to this. So they're both in Acts. I'm going to pop over there and read them real quick. In Acts 10, this is Peter talking to Cornelius and the other Gentiles who are gathered with him. He's preaching to them. And he says, starting with 38, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify. Here's the key thing that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. That's Peter's testimony to this. If we go over to Acts 17, 30 to 31, Paul is in the middle of uh, what's called the Sermon on Mars Hill. He's in Athens at the Areopagus, Areopagus. And in verse 30, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. Jesus said, not even the father judges. He's given judgment to the son. 31, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Okay. So, Jesus has authority over judgment. Um, All right, I want to pause here and let's remember where we've come from. I'm about to jump into verse 23. 22 and 23. Now, 23. We're at 23. Who are the group of people that have had an issue here? The Jews. This started back in 16 through 18. And their issue I had had on the background chart that it was he healed on the Sabbath. But as we came into verse 18, it's a bigger deal now. It's that he's equating himself with God. Okay, your opinion. In the few verses we've covered, has Jesus helped mollify their concern? He's ratcheted it up. 
Now, I used to think, and there may still be truth in it, that Jesus is just getting their goat. He's egging them on. I don't think that's the case. Not in this passage. It seems like that. But he loves these people. He does what the Father does. He says what the Father says. God doesn't wish for anyone to perish, but for all to come to salvation, to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus loves these people, and some of these Jews are going to be followers of his in subsequent chapters. And so he's telling them what they need to hear, and he's ratcheting up because they can't, it's a subject they can't avoid. You have to deal, I'm speaking as if I'm Christ, you have to deal with my claim that I am the Son of God, I am God in the flesh. I am God here before you. Um, Bob has talked much about the passages in John where Jesus says, I am. And in our English Bibles, they often put a he in italics, which kind of masks the, the reference to Exodus 3. Those are coming up later. He doesn't get to that point here. But he's still driving home the point, and he's picked the two examples of things we think of God doing that are the most amazing. He didn't pick turning the water to wine. He didn't pick healing somebody. He has that authority. I meant to say earlier, they're more. I'm just covering the authorities that are in this chapter. In turning the water to wine, Jesus showed he has authority over matter, just totally changing the chemical composition. Uh, Chuck, in his overview uh, of the book of John, talked about how there's no healing, uh, casting out of demons in the book of John, which is true. But in Mark 1, which I'm convinced has taken place before this part of John, Jesus has cast out demons. He's shown authority over demons. In Mark 2, which I also think has happened before this point, he has shown authority to forgive sins. So he's got more authorities than we're covering here. But he picks the two things that nobody would think that a prophet of God or a godly man, or a good man with some good teaching could possibly... These are reserved for God to resurrect the dead and to judge them. Well, Jesus picks these two. And that sets up us going into verse 23, because here we're told why. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Or another way we could say that second part, he who dishonors the Son dishonors the Father. So we are to honor the Son. Who's to do it? First part of verse 23, all. That all may honor the Son. How? Even as they honor the Father. In other words, in the same way as you honor the Father. All the things you think of, you religious Jews... We, Christian people, think of for honoring the Father, we should be honoring the Son the same way. This is actually a very good verse to talk to a Jehovah's Witness about. Honor the Son the same as honoring the Father. Why? I hopped to the other side, a little glimpse of this on the other side of verse 24. Verse 27, he gave him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. So, honoring the Son leads us into what God's big plan is. And in my words, it's to be glorified and highly exalting Jesus. 
So I just want to read a couple of passages here. Uh, on the note sheet, I've got a bunch of verses, uh, some really good ones. Um, there's a really good one in Colossians 1. We're not going to read that this morning, but I can give a plug. Next Sunday, we're going into Colossians in Sunday school. It is a really good letter from Paul. And so if you want to study Colossians, we're going to be starting in it next Sunday. Um, but Philippians has a good summary verse that I think is, if I'm just going to pick one, it is a good one to represent the New Testament view of this plan of God. So in Philippians 2, starting with verse 9, therefore, it's going to be talking about Christ, the hymns, the pronoun is Jesus. Therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father is intent on passing all authority to God the Son and teeing up God the Son to give life, to rule on this earth, think the millennial kingdom, to judge and to rule beyond that. Um, Two good Old Testament passages. I mentioned Daniel 7 earlier about the Son of Man, so I'm going to read... 13 and 14 to you, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. I want you to note that has never happened in the history of the world where any one ruler had everybody in the whole world serving him. It's never happened. All the great empires of the earth, it has never happened. But that's what God, ancient of days, is intent on doing. Continuing the end of 14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's not going to end. Which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's giving you an Old Testament glimpse of God's plan to glorify himself by highly exalting the Son. The Son of Man was mentioned, but is that Yahweh the Son? Let's go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a wonderful passage, and it, it means more to me in this context of God's plan. Because we see it, uh, I'm going to start in verse 4. It's, the first three verses have been about the nations being in an uproar. They're resisting God. They're rebelling from God. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, Adonai, scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Who's talking? Yahweh. Yahweh's talking here. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the degree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is not the psalmist talking about Yahweh. This is the psalmist telling you, here's what I heard Yahweh say. Okay? 
Verse 10 to 12. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. There's something to learn from this for all you kings in the world. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun or literally kiss the sun. The picture is of an emperor with, you know, the hand or the ring and his subject on his knees kissing the hand. That's the imagery here. Kiss the sun, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. But lest we stop with scary news. Look at the last phrase. How blessed are all who trust in him. Or that, when you look up that word, it, it means to take refuge, to flee to. How blessed are those who flee to the Lord, who take refuge. Wait, 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 wait. Who's the hymn? We're talking about the son. Blessed are those who take refuge in the son, who flee to the, lo- the son. So, Old Testament, it's there. New Testament, it's there. All right, I want to do a little tangent, and then we're going to come back to 24, which is going to be the big finish. Um, as I was looking at this, I started thinking, well, how many resurrections are there in Scripture? And before I show you stuff, by resurrection, I mean where someone rises from the dead and never dies again. Jesus did three resurrections that are recorded in Scripture. Uh, both Elijah and Elisha raised people from the dead. They all died again. I'm talking here resurrections where you don't die again. And I'm claiming that there's four. Um, this could also be a little controversial. The, different people have some different views on a few things. So at this point in my life, this is what I, th- I think. Christ is first. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, Paul tells us that Christ is the first fruits. Let me get over to that. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So the second would be the church. Those who are Christ at his coming. It was in Sunday school today, I think, that there was Bob was talking a little bit about who is the church and different views that different groups have. When we say church here, we mean real believers, people that belong to Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean people that come to an assembly in the building um, where there could be a mixture of some who are really Christians and some who aren't. The church is those who have been saved by Christ. And so at his coming, um, they're going to be resurrected. So now go into this First Thess 4 passage that I have here, First Thessalonians 4. This is such a good passage. Um, and first, this is such a small book. I'm having trouble finding it. There it is. Starting in verse 13. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who may have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do we believe that? Jesus died and rose again. We believe that, right? Yeah, okay, wake up. So, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, or as in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Fallen asleep being a uh, euphemism for having died. 
15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we, always, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Um, Bob uh, went through this passage at a men's breakfast two or three years ago. And he talked about this Greek word. I have it on the screen there. But in verse 17, caught up, it's uh, harpazo. And it means to snatch out, to pluck away, to seize. It's a quick, in and out, snatch. And ever since then, I mean, that was eye-opening for me. I've been, I've been just to myself. I hadn't been telling other people. But I've been calling it the great snatching. <laughs> because Christ is going to come back. So in First Thess 5, we're told it's not God's will that we go through his wrath, that we suffer the wrath of destruction. It's not his will. So Christ is going to come back and snatch his church out. The great snatching. Um, so the third group is the tribulation saints. And here we, we go over to Revelation. I already said that, it, that I think Matthew 25. Well, no, that's on judgment. Scratch that. So we go over to Revelation 20. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Those would be martyrs, right? They were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus. And oh, by the way, he sees their souls. Their souls are alive. He's seeing them. Not with bodies yet. Souls are alive. There's another part where I think I don't think he's talking about the the tribulation martyrs, but about people before that, where he talks about seeing the souls and spirits of people. So their souls are there. When we think of uh, to be absent from the bodies to be with the Lord, when we die, we go to be with the Lord. But I can't explain to you exactly how that works. That your soul and spirit has gone to be with the Lord. Do you have your body yet? I don't know, but someday you will. I don't know for sure how that works. But continuing in verse 4, I see the souls, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. We tend to think of these being the tribulation martyrs. After I read this, I, I, I'm not so sure it's only martyrs. It probably is. That's what I've always been taught. But the way the and those pops in there, it's almost like he's talking about another group. Those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Certainly those that were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God would not have worshipped the beast or his image. I'm kind of open to the possibility that there could be people who didn't worship the beast or his image who are saints and they die of a non-martyred reason during the tribulation. I'm open to that being part of what this means. I'm not going to go to the mat arguing for it, though. But I, I just mentioned that as something that occurred to me as I read it. So I called it tribulation saints instead of tribulation martyrs. But it certainly includes all the martyrs. And the end of verse 4 says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Resurrection. The third resurrection. 
Um, and then the last one is the great white throne in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Um, we're right there. So in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Resurrection has happened. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of the life, the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. That sounds an awful lot like in Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats, according to the deeds. When I said, by the way, that the farmer, you're a sheep, you're a goat, right and left, it's a simple thing. I did not mean to say that Jesus is going to let people off without reviewing their sins. Clearly, Books are being read of their deeds. My point was it's an easy decision for Christ. Okay, so I'm in the middle of verse 12. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Um, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, I, I just want to say a couple things about this. So there are different opinions on some of the things related to the great white throne judgment. I already mentioned that. Um, some people teach that this is just a judgment of all who are going to be condemned. I think that this has got to include people whose names are written in the book of life or why was that even mentioned but then if we also look at the people involved here this is just christ in number one first fruits the the great snatching is just the church that's people who have believed in christ since his death and resurrection up until when the rapture occurs the tribulation saints are from that point the rapture through to the end of the uh, the tribulation There's no non-believers in these two groups, three groups. And there's also no Old Testament saints in those groups. I think they're involved here at number four. Now, I don't think the ones that, like, take Abraham. He believed in God, and God reckoned it. He had faith in God. He believed in God. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Um, I'm not saying they aren't in heaven. What I'm saying is I don't understand it. They're in heaven. They're with the Lord because Jesus said, citing uh, the Old Testament, that he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living, the God of Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living. They're living even though their bodies are in the ground. So I think this is also includes... It includes everybody up to when Jesus died and rose from the dead. Everybody will stand at that point. And the heroes of the faith, their names are in the book of life at that point. So some of that can be controversial. But I just wanted to put that before you, stimulate thought. Go search the scriptures yourself. Now, I have a question before I move on. I'm not telling you how many judgments... I'm telling you how many resurrections. And what you see here, which group goes through judgment? Only the last one. 
None of the passages on the first three talk about a judgment. How does that happen? Well, let's go to verse 24. So in verse 24, I first want to point something out in 25 through 28. 25, truly, truly, or most assuredly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. So what he's about to talk about in 25 is true right there as Jesus is talking. Now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. He's talking to people who are spiritually separated from God. Remember that death really means separation. When you die physically, your soul and spirit are separated from your body. Spiritual death is to be separated from God. So he says, it's an hour that now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. Having the authority to give life, Jesus is speaking that people can have life even though they've been dead spiritually, their life physically. When we get to verse 28, preceding or right at the beginning of the passage about the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment, he says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. An hour is coming. These are different hours. Verse 28 is a different hour than verse 25. It's important to note. Now, there's overlap in some of the meaning as one flows into the other. But they are different hours. One now is. The other is coming. I think 24 and 25 go together. And when he says now is... That's reflecting back to 24 because the now is he's talking about giving life. He's not talking about bringing judgment. All right. When we look at 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So I want to show you. I want to show you something that should be familiar in one way or another to most of you. This is our problem. God's on one side, we're on the other. Sin separates us from God. Isaiah says in Isaiah 59, your, in, your, your transgressions, no, is it transgression? Your iniquity, that's what it is. Your iniquity has separated you from your God. We are separated because of our sin. Well, sin has consequences. Hebrews 9, well, Romans 6.23, the beginning of it, Most of you know it. For the wages of sin is death. Wages are something we earn. We got it coming to us. It's not a gift. It's not a freebie. You did something to earn it. We think of it in a positive way. I go to work and I should get paid. It's the same meaning here. It's just not positive. I've sinned. I should have to pay. Uh, The consequences. Hebrews 9.27 says... It is appointed for men to die once. That's the physical death. Separated from your body. And then it is appointed for men to die once. And then comes judgment. And you stand in judgment. And to think before God. But what we just studied. It is God. It's Yahweh the Son. That we stand before. Um, Romans 6.23. To finish it. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life 
versus death. That's a spiritual death there. The wages of sin is death spiritually separated from your God. When Adam sinned, eating the forbidden fruit, there was a separation created immediately between his, he and his God. He didn't physically die that same day, but he spiritually died that moment. So that's our situation. And um, we're kind of in a world of hurt. Um, the Bible says we can't fix this problem ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. It's not of works, it goes on to talk. We can't earn our way from one side to the other. We can't fix this problem. Uh, Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, not because of any good deeds. Now, both of those passages have the glimpse, the hope of salvation, but the means is not anything I can do. We're in a world of hurt. We got a bad problem. The good news is Jesus becomes our bridge from one side to the other. He is the sacrifice who brings us to God. So now I want you to see the beauty of John 5, 24. He who hears, so it's most assuredly, he who hears my word. So that means you're hearing what Jesus is saying. What's that for us? We're reading what Jesus is saying. And more than just John 5, all of what he says. We hear his word and believe in him. Got a typo there. Believe in him who sent me. That's the father. So you hear Jesus's word and you believe in him who sent him. That has built into it that you're believing the words. If you're believing in the one who did the sending, then you're going to believe the words of the messenger who has been sent. Okay? In, in the Greek, the believe is the verb companion to the noun word that is faith. So faith and belief dovetail together. This is not a belief that is a, uh, uh, an intellectual belief with no consequences for you. Um, for instance, uh, an intellectual belief, I could believe the sun, uh, the earth goes around the sun. Or I could believe the, that it's the other way around and the sun's going around the earth. My day-to-day life is not changed by that. Now, if you, if you work for NASA and you're involved in launching space probes to Mars or other planets then if you have the solar system model wrong, it's going to lower your success rate. So that might have a day-to-day effect for you if you believe the sun's going around the earth. But I don't... Does anybody here work for NASA? Nobody here works for NASA. Nobody here is involved in interplanetary exploration. And so for all of us, it's an academic belief. It happens to be true that the earth is going around the sun. We know that now. But if you believe the opposite, your day-to-day life's not going to change just because you have chosen to believe something different. That's not what this is. This is not an academic belief where, in my mind, I'm going to acquiesce and just say, okay, um, I believe that the Father sent the Son, and I believe the message that he sent. It doesn't work that way. God knows your heart. He knows if you're sincere in that belief. This is about a belief a faith that changes you. Okay, that's what this belief. So back to the verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, we've got a gift list coming. And we're going to go from the bottom up. 
All right. Has everlasting life. Boom. There goes spiritual death. One of our three problems. Out the door. Um, does not come into. No. What does it say? Has. Uh, uh, does not come into judgment. Does not come into judgment. No judgment. Boom. There goes judgment. Who here wants to go to judgment? Does anybody want to go to judgment? I have heard a couple of stories about people in in fender bender type accidents, and I think I've maybe heard one like this that's uh, just in a traffic violation. But a fender bender accident, where the policeman—and I don't know if this is proper etiquette—I didn't check with Hunter, but the policeman. This is what the people have told me: the policeman told the person, "You're going to get four points on your ticket, but if you come to the court date and see me before the court date." and you have proof that your insurance is handling this for the other person who's the one you've impacted because you were at fault, then I'll remove or lower the points, and you won't actually have to go before the judge. And the people that have done that, boy, they make a point to get that insurance statement and take it in there, and they meet with the police officer, and, he's, and they, he you know, does something, and out they walk without having to go before the judge. Isn't that good? You don't want to go to judgment. The only person who wants to go to judgment is when you've been offended greatly, hurt by someone else, and you want to go watch them go to judgment. Okay? But you don't want to go to judgment. So this is awesome. Everlasting life, spiritual death's gone. No judgment. You're out of the judgment. And then he says, and has passed out of death into life. Death to life. Physical death, it's not that it's gone away, but there's no fear of it. You're not concerned about what's on the other side because you know you're bypassing judgment and having spiritual life. And so then you hop to the other side. There you are. Um, So I'm just going to finish real quick with this. Uh, So Jesus, starting in 31 to 47, he's going to give five witnesses for the the Jew in, in for a legal thing in court. One witness wasn't good enough. You had to have two. This is about a court thing, by the way. It's not necessarily that Old Testament law, something just between you and your brother or sister in your family. But it's a legal thing. And so Jesus says that he's a witness of himself. Verse 31 is implied. If I alone bear witness of myself, then my testimony wouldn't be true. But I can bear witness of myself. And hasn't he been doing that? He's been witnessing for a whole bunch of verses here. Where if you were reading it on your own, your eyes might have started to glaze over in all that conversation. Hopefully, I've kept you a little bit awake. And you haven't just glazed over as I've been talking about it. But it's a lot of verses he's been witnessing, okay, about himself, about what the Father has given him in terms of authority. Number two is John the baptizer. Uh, I got some verses on the handout where you can go look at that. Uh, number three is his works. He says, believe the works if you won't believe anything else. Um. Number four is the Father. I got some more things on the handout about that. And then number five is the Scriptures. And by the way, over here, I, I didn't want to say Jesus has authority over the Scriptures. That just didn't seem right. So I said he has authority in the Scriptures because the Scriptures are the Word of God. And Jesus is the Word of God. He has spoken these Scriptures, right? So I've said authority in the Scriptures. But these are five witnesses, and, and I'm, I'm ending right here with the big point. The big point is that Jesus cares for you. He's giving all these. That song we sing, that last one, he 
how did that phrase go? He gives, he gives and gives and gives and gives again. That's what I think Jesus is doing here with the witnesses. He only needs two. But he's given and given and given five because he wants the Jews to believe. Look at verse 34, talking about John the baptizer at this point. But he says, the witness which I receive is not from man. I don't need this guy's witness. But I say these things that you may be saved. That applies to the whole list of the witnesses. He's going over and beyond from a legal court perspective. That you might believe he loves these people. And he loves you and me. So, um, do you hear and believe what Jesus says? Now, if you have professed faith in Christ and, and you were sincere about it and your life has been changing... You can hear these things and say, I got this. Yes, I hear and believe. But let's take it a little further because Jesus said a whole lot more. In uh, Luke 9, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Ouch. That can be hard. But do you hear and believe? How is that playing out in your life? In, in Matthew 5, boy, he meddles in things. He talks about how if a man looks on a woman to lust for her, he's guilty of adultery in his heart. Didn't do anything with her. He's looking on a woman to lust for her. Do you hear and believe? If that is a problem of yours, are you going to stop? You know, in 1 Peter, well, Jesus said things about this too, but in 1 Peter, referring to Jesus... Peter says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, because it is written, I am ho- you shall be holy, for I am holy. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy. Do you hear and believe? Still in Matthew 5, um, Jesus talks about anger. And he equates it with murder. He says, if you, call, if you call your brother a fool, you shall be guilty of, I'm trying to find it, the exact words, of going to the fiery, to the fiery hell. If you call, if, if you, whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Who sends people to the fiery hell from what we just talked about? The Father has given judgment to the Son. So, on anger, do you hear and believe? Are you going to stop it? Are you going to let the Holy Spirit working through you quench the anger? Or are you going to let the anger have its way and quench the Spirit? Um. But in the passage we've just gone through, where this most applies is if you've not yet put your faith in Christ. That's where this most applies. He says in 524, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. I talked earlier about how that belief is a faith that changes you. If you profess to be a Christian, but as you in honesty, but just you talking to yourself, think back on your life, you've never really changed. 
Boy, you need to look hard at that. Because the real salvation is a birth that God causes to happen. John 1, verse 12 and 13. Brings us to life, regenerated from the dead spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can be new people. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So I challenge you. Think on that. Oh, we have a baptismal service coming up in a couple of weeks. And, you know, baptism in the, in the New Testament, the word is transliterated for what I think is political reasons among interpreters because they don't want to take a side in the arguments of what baptism means. But if you say the word literally, let me read to you from Matthew 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee and Jordan at the Jordan, coming to John to be dunked by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be dunked by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. If you profess faith in Christ, but haven't been baptized, we got an opportunity at the characters coming up on the 30th. So anyway, do you hear and believe what Jesus says? Um, do you honor the Son? We need to think about this. Uh, uh, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 4.29 talks about using only wholesome words that build up and edify. And then in Ephesians 5, verse 3 to 4, it talks about how it's not fitting for believers to be involved in filthy language. Coarse jokes. In our vernacular today, we'd say gutter language, gutter jokes, off-color jokes. Um, Something to think about. If you profess faith in Christ, are you honoring him with your words as you'd honor the Father? Are you, just in general, are you honoring the Son the way you know you should honor the Father? Is there a need to change the way you think and therefore the way you act? Let's pray and then we'll sing a song. Father, I thank you that it is your plan and has been to glorify yourself by highly exalting your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, I, I can't fully understand the triune nature that you present in Scripture. But it seems clear that Yahweh became human in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be on fire for you. To be people of faith who hear your word, believe it, and are changed by it and stand upon it. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.